Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, quick reminder, the Other People podcast is offered freely. More than 500 episodes and counting all available free of charge. You can listen online at otherppl.com. You can listen via iTunes, Stitcher, iHeartRadio. You can stream the show on Spotify, whatever you like. There's an official Other People app. That too is free. Everything is offered freely. It's a listener-supported program. If you like the show and you want to support it, you can do so at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. That's patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Okay. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Gee, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. It was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person at just one time. Hey, right. right, everybody. How's it right. going? Welcome to the Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Listy. I am here in Los Angeles, California, and uh, it's a Sunday episode. Can you believe it? I'm doing a Sunday show. I have Susan Henderson on the program today. She is an old pal of mine. Her new novel is called The Flicker of Old Dreams. It is available from Harper Perennial. Uh, I have known Susan Henderson for more than a decade. I was doing the math. I think we go back like 13 years, 12 or 13 years. And uh, what's interesting, or perhaps uh, normal, in a certain sense, is that I had never before been in a room with Sue, but I feel like I know her. I've known her forever. She runs a literary site called litpark.com. Many of you are probably familiar with that. Uh, like Sue and I go back to like MySpace days, old school. And uh, it was just so great uh, to get a chance to meet her. She lives over on the other side of the country, and she was out here in Los Angeles. She came over, we sat down, we talked. That is coming up momentarily. I do want to share a brief story with you that is uh, related, as many of my monologues in recent weeks seem to be, to uh, the issue of sleep deprivation. I don't know if you can hear it in my voice. I don't know if you can detect fatigue in my voice, but uh, I am sleep deprived. I've been up since 1.45 this morning. And interestingly, uh, the culprit, the reason why I've been up since 1.45 this morning is because of uh, Alexa, the uh, Amazon uh, artificial intelligence being, I don't even know what you call her. It's artificial intelligence, right? Yeah. Amazon echo. Do you have one of these? Have you ever used one of these? We have a couple of these things in our house and use, uh, use them predominantly 
for music. Like I ask Alexa to play music. It, it, it's so much nicer and quicker and more convenient and less of a hassle than having to go dial it up and look for something. And, you know, I just get sidetracked. I just ask Alexa to like play some music and she does it and it works and it's great. Am I concerned about the surveillance capabilities of a device that can hear you uh, from like 40 feet away across your house? Sure. It's a little creepy. And yet uh, that's not enough to stop me from having one in my bedroom. (laughs) Uh, God only knows what uh, Jeff Bezos is privy to. God only knows what the uh, federal government or uh, external foreign powers could be privy to should they wish to exploit Alexa and all of the Amazon Echoes in the world. It's probably not that smart to have one. There's probably data somewhere stored, some sort of vault or some sort of digital archive. But uh, anyway, in addition to uh, music, I also ask Alexa to set alarms for me when I want to get up in the morning. She's sort of my alarm clock. So it's like, you know, Alexa, uh, set an alarm for 5.15 a.m. That's what I did last night. I get up early. You guys know that. So I do that right before bed. And uh, sure enough, the alarm goes off. It wakes me up. I sit up in bed. I'm kind of startled. Alexa, off. (laughs) That's what I say. It's like, it's kind of humiliating to the whole thing, the whole arrangement with artificial intelligence and Alexa, the way you're talking to it. It's, I find it humiliating. Alexa off. And then, you know, I got, I'm like really tired. I was like in a dead sleep and uh, I felt like in my body, I was like, Oh, I just want to stay in bed. I just want to stay under these covers. I'm warm. I want to go back to sleep, feel good in here. I don't want to leave. But uh, I'm pretty disciplined. And uh, I don't know. I feel like my, my mornings are pretty regimented. I got to get the kids to school. If I want to get everything done that I want to get done, I got to get up. I got to get out of bed. If I want some peace and quiet in the morning, this is my time. So I just, I just get out of bed. I tend to just rip the Band-Aid off. I move as quickly as I can. I get on my feet. Once that's done, that's, you know, the, the, then the hard part is over. And uh, I, you know, I get up. I go into the bathroom. I brush my teeth. I do, you know, I do my morning ritual. I splash cold water on my face. I always do like three splashes, (laughs) which, uh, I don't know. It's not OCD. It's not like my lucky number is nine. Three is a square root of nine. I've settled on three. It seems like a normal number. If you're going to pick a number of splashes, but it's not OCD. It's not like I'm turning the uh, light off 17 times before I leave the room. I'm not touching the doorknob 26 times before I, you know, I enter, it's nothing like that. I just splash my face three times in the morning, like a normal person. So I do all of this and then uh, I'm going to uh, meditate because that's also part of my like ritualized morning. I'm a disciplined human being. It's the only time I can do it with the house quiet. And, uh, I go in and I'm like sitting down on my little cushion, like, okay, we're going to do this. It's morning. I, I open, like I look at my phone because that's where I use my little timer, uh, you know, to time the meditation or whatever. And I look at my phone, it's two o'clock in the morning. And, uh, I sort of sat there for a moment. Like I was confused. I was like, what? Then I realized it was dark. Like there was no dawn light, like peeking in through the windows or whatever. And I was like, oh my God, it's the middle of the night. Alexa has uh, failed me. She's tricked me. 
for some reason woke me up at like 1.45 in the morning. I guess she misheard me. I was like, what? I couldn't figure it out. Maybe it was a time zone issue. Like what? Why did Alexa do this to me? I feel like I have trust issues with Alexa now. I can't trust her. And if you know anything about me from listening to this show, particularly in recent weeks, you know that uh, if I get up in the middle of the night, I can't, I can't fall back asleep. Like once I'm up, it's especially if I get up and I'm splashing water on my face and, you know, forget it. So I go back to bed, but I know, I'm, I feel like a sense of doom. It's 2 a.m. I'm like, okay. I get my phone out. I start looking at Twitter, you know. I closed my eyes, but I never fell back asleep. I've been up since 1.45. So I thought, uh, you know, it's now the end of the day. I'm still going somehow. I have kind of a faint headache, but I'm still going. I have trust issues with Alexa, but uh, I'm working through them. We'll have to have a conversation later. Try to see if we can resolve this. I, you know, try to see if we can rebuild from the ashes. And uh, I thought that maybe I would try to exploit my sleep deprived uh, my sleep deprived state for a rambling monologue. Do a Sunday show. We'll make something good out of it. Hey everybody! If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called "Truth Is the Arrow, Mercy Is the Bow." a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So I'm very pleased to have Sue Henderson here on the program. Her new novel, once again, is called The Flicker of Old Dreams, available now from Harper Perennial. Here she is, folks. This is Susan Henderson. The thing that, um, that came second. The thing that came first was um, the book started sort of bubbling up. I didn't know it was a book yet, but it was um, during the rise of the Tea Party. And in my neighborhood, you know, I'm like a manic walker. And I was walking, walking in these, those yellow flags with the snakes were, were going up house after house. And then this one woman was like writing in your neighborhood in in New York on Long Island, okay, which is, it's not the same as New York city. And we're in a very, very like lower middle-class working class, you know, people like appliance repairmen and um waitresses and stuff in my neighborhood fishermen sure and so the flags were going up and i was like really new york and then um there was this one house that i would pass i would be in like a good mood and walking around there's birds petting dogs and stuff and i'd pass her house and every day she had a rant written on the back of her car window in shaving cream 
and it would and it would just be stuff that it's like i know she didn't care about that yesterday she just heard that and now she's mad about you know whatever you know <laughs> well, can, can you remember a rant like how, how long first of all are we talking like 10 words or are we talking like 150 we're talking like three you know like she'd be like um well, like now it would be like blue lives matter or whatever oh, okay. you know, it would be something like that right and, and then there was this truck that would always park in front of the bakery and and it had a rant in those uh letters you can buy that are you know like they're they're black on the edges and the letters are in gold okay and it was this like entire quote from george washington i can't remember what it was but it was just like on and on and on but but it was it was a tea party thing and then I was driving past our post office, and th- there was this giant um, like billboard of Obama's face. So this is in, in the Obama years. And they had the Hitler mustache on him. And m- my kids were in the car, and I was just like, I know I shouldn't do this with my kids in the car, but I like, pulled really fast into the post office, went inside, and I was just like, is this your sign? <laughs> you know, and who can I talk to and stuff? And they said, well, it's not our property. And I was like, you're okay with it touching the corner of your property. And I, and so they told me who to call. So I, I called somebody and later one of my right wing neighbors came by. She's the lady who always lets her dog poo in our yard and she doesn't pick it up. <laughs> she, um, she came by and she said, um, you should be careful who you call or, or you don't want like the, the police to not come to your house if you need help. So I was just kind of like, okay. So I became obsessed with the rage I was feeling, the rage I was seeing on these signs and and this division with the life I I fight really hard for and and what what their dreams were and just they just didn't what what mix. do you think what do you think i mean because you spent a lot mm-hmm. of time pondering this what, what is the rage of the tea party it's it's about uh economic anxiety mm-hmm. it's about racism mm-hmm. and it's about a f- kind of a scarcity mindset yeah like we're running out Right. Like we're not going to have the opportunity. And, and you took it if you, you know. And if you're brown, you, you, you know, if you're trying to get into this country, you're going to take mine. Right. Right. And, you know, it's funny. I was just listening today to uh, a Terry Gross interview with a guy who was talking about global capitalism and how it's actually an issue that unites factions of the left and factions of the right, but hmm. for different reasons. Mm-hmm. You know, so like on the left, global capitalism, you know, tends to remove uh, some of the safeguards that would, uh, you know, provide some degree of, um, like some guarantee of, mm-hmm. uh, economic stability and like a share in the, in the pie. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm thinking like post-war it's like post-world war two, right. like those like FDR guarantees, yeah. like, you know, where people and they were unionized and, right. like, and when it starts to go global but a sense of stability or fairness stability and fairness in a sense that like i'm going to be able to support my family if i work full time right you know and that's sort right. of goes away when somebody like overseas can work for half your wage and right you know and then on the right a lot you know it's much i think it's like a more uh crude uh nationalism mm-hmm. you know where it's like if your company's trying to get into this country just like what we were talking about you're going to take mine and right. uh I don't know. It's like, I guess what I, what I think personally when I consider all this is that as a person who, uh, has more sympathy 
with the former rather than the latter. Yeah. Uh, it makes me think like we really need to take care of the, the poor and the vulnerable among us first. Mm-hmm. Like that is so bad. And like, I guess, I mean, frankly, like Bernie said it like the loudest and the clearest to me yeah, the yeah. last time. And he was I, the clearest. That was his great gift. It reminded yeah. me, or, uh, yeah. it, I don't know. It just moved me. Cause I was just like, God, I just want somebody to say that. Like yeah. the first dollar we spend should go to the poor and the vulnerable. Yeah. And like that, and on the right and the left. Yeah. Like, you know what I'm saying? Cause I think like it's very hard. And, and this is what was in the Terry Gross interview that resonated today is that it's very hard to, uh, remove all of these safeguards for, uh, working class people mm-hmm. and vulnerable populations and have them experiencing this very real economic anxiety mm-hmm. where opportunities are going away and like their lives are ruined. Like, yeah. you know, their retirements are gone or they're going to have to work till they die or their kids can't go to college or they have like a real, like visceral sense that like, you know what? We're getting a lot less yeah. than the other guys. Yeah. Like there are people that the, the disparity, right. It's very hard when those people are experiencing those things to look at them and say, by the way, we want you to be super, super tolerant on social issues and on immigration. Yeah. And like, I sort of get that. Like, I wish that they could, but mm-hmm. I, I get like emotionally, like on a human level, how someone could be like, you know, a fisherman who, or mm-hmm. somebody who worked in a factory who suddenly just effed. Here's where I disagree though. When I would walk by that lady's house with the shaving cream, cause she just set me off whatever mood I was in. Then I was enraged for the rest of the walk and it was, it was driving me crazy. But I think a lot of those people, their life was actually fine. Uh-huh. They're watching, they're ingesting rage and messages that they're that From like Fox and right wing radio. Yeah. Right. And I think it just flips a switch. I think, um, there are a lot of people who, if you take enough crap in, it, it just kind of like gets in you and then you, and then you, but it's like, I could see that nothing when, when Obama got in, nothing about her house or the things I saw in her driveway or the way she cut her lawn or if she did, nothing changed. Right. The mindset changed. So I kind of think there's what you said there, there is, you know, there, there are economic things we need to address. And, and, um, people want to know that if, if you work hard and you play by the rules that you can get somewhere and that your children will be okay and they won't drown in debt. And, we have like just a giant propaganda machine and I think it's making people crazy. I well, mean, it's just I, making them not think. I know, and yeah. I mean, media literacy is a huge issue. Yeah. And literacy generally, not that people are, are, are illiterate necessarily, but just got People have got to get, um, get reading more. Yeah. You know, just... Well, even like no matter, except for PBS, there's no American news station. I know that I, our, our stations are so America centric and it's like, there's so many other things happening in the world. And it's just, you know, it's kind of amazing how limited our focus is. Well, if you watch like BBC, yeah, like everyone, cause the thing is, is that I I'm guilty of watching too much American media mm-hmm. where it is yeah, kind of, too. kind of like America, America. And it's like this, this, I don't know. There's a very stark difference between how BBC America presents the news and mm-hmm. how like MSNBC or the major networks or yeah. CNN presents the news. And right. then. Um, you know, they had, they have a much more global perspective, yeah. whereas us, it's always like about the squabbles. No, we've totally and... lost our global perspective. Yeah. It's in, not in good. 
But I guess like <clears throat> last point I'll make, and then mm -hmm. I want to get back to your book is okay. politically, I think it's smart for whoever runs, uh, on the left to do what I said, because <laughs> it's a winning message. It'll yeah. unite. Like, just like, yeah. I feel like the, the anxieties that people are experiencing out there, whether they're founded or not, mm -hmm. if somebody will just say, Hey, like, yeah. I, we want to start with the, the people who have the least, right? Like, why is that? Like, that's, that's that a winning be message. So hard. I know. I know. <laughs> uh, so anyway, this is, but to, you know, this is, uh, how we got onto this topic is that yeah. this is what was driving the creation of your novel. Like yeah. you were walking around Long Island, mm -hmm. watching the rise of the tea party. Mm -hmm. Uh, and you started to think about what, like people fearing. I was like, just, I was just sitting with the rage and the division and the division started to become neighbor to neighbor, family member to family member. And it made me start thinking of, I, I was kind of like, who are these people? And I was like, Oh, I'll bet they're the people that live in this town that we used to always visit when I was a kid, where my dad grew up. And so that... This is Winnet, Winnet Montana? Winnet, Montana. Yeah. So that's what um, made me go back to that town. And I just felt like, I didn't know what the story was, but I felt like something about, like, what is this I'm seeing and experiencing? What is this? And I just felt like, I'll bet you if I spent time in this town... You followed your instincts. Yeah. And like, that's actually like, I don't know. It feels like an, uh, an emotionally mature response yeah. <laughs> and also like an interesting creative response. But it's not joy. <laughs> you know, there's no joy involved at all. It was, a, it was just a joyless <laughs> plotting. Yeah. And, and let's talk about this because mm -hmm. you did some experiential research that I think yeah. is really cool. Uh, I've always advocated for that on this show mm -hmm. and like just in conversations I've had with writers where it's like the, the work is hard enough. Mm -hmm you might as well get out into the world and get your hands dirty a little bit and have yeah. these like actual life experiences that you then take back to the notebook or the keyboard or right. whatever. Cause otherwise I only have what I already thought and it's like, I couldn't figure it out. Right. So I, I went to this little town in what? 2013. In yeah. 2013, 14, one of those. Yeah. Okay. But during the Obama presidency. During, yes. And you go to win it. How many people live in Winnet, Montana? Uh, not quite 180 okay. people and, just, and they're very spread out. You would think it was maybe nine. Okay. So, and describe, like, give people like a picture of what, okay. the, cause it's, is it the Montana of like the beautiful mountains? And, like, no. Okay. So we're in this like just brown flat. Sometimes it's like a white yellow or brown flat goes on and on and on. And then the town is it's dirt roads. It's no street lights, no traffic lights, no, I think there's one stop sign and there's one restaurant. It's a diner. And what's it called? At the cozy corner. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> they make very In good In case pie. anybody listening wants to uh, stop over and yeah. have, a, have a bite to eat. Oh, there was a funny story about the cozy corner. So there was this, um, framed, um, article from like gourmet magazine or something on their wall. And they had been chosen as, um, like a great American food find. And they featured their hotcakes in this article. And I was talking to the woman who owns the diner and she said that they, um, they wrote up how like they were so fluffy and, you know, the, and she said, um, they really badgered her to get the recipe for these hotcakes and she wouldn't give it up. And I was like, would you give me the recipe? And she's like, it was Krusty's mix it was this crusty's mix but their water is so weird and like fizzy 
that she thinks it's it was filled with like petrochemicals like or? probably sulfur, sulfur like it okay. smells bad and yeah. it, when you wash your hair it feels like um like somebody like washed you in like oil or something okay but that's freaky. I, but she thinks it was the weird water but it was just like crusty she's just like following the back of the the box <laughs> you know and they and they got an article so it was like their most famous thing that's ever happened in their in their town so the so people there's no reason to move to this place unless i find the only people that move there are like off they're just like a little bit off they want to live off the grid yeah okay yeah and so so what you're saying is i might i might be up there in a few years yeah (laughs) (laughs) you can actually just like move into a house there's so many empty houses here just take one yeah so they're empty and they're also like tipped and like sunk halfway into the dirt and it's, it's some trailer homes and some things up on center blocks and some some you know like small homes and then um you can't tell which ones are vacant and which ones aren't and a lot of people put tinfoil on the windows is like a heating trick just to, to keep it in yeah because it, it's got to be brutal in the winter yeah which is one of the when my editor harper collins the, the copy editor the one who's like does the totally nerdy bit and um one of the things she did was there was an oxygen tank too close to a fireplace like that's the kind of thing and she's like can you move the where can you rearrange the way the room's set up? You know? Yeah, yeah. Um, but one of them was, she's like, D- did you mean um, saran wrap on the windows? Because then you couldn't see out. And so I showed her all these pictures of people that the, the windows just covered in tinfoil. And she's like, oh, okay. Because wow. she thought I like mistyped. You can't like truth is stranger than yeah. fiction. <laughs> yeah, so it's, the, it's these little little houses. So this is where my dad grew up. And this is where my grandparents were, where we used to visit. my. What um, was the economy? It's like agriculture, like people farming. Like the economy is—it's is like almost all unemployment right now or underemployment. But it, it's ranching, okay, um, cattle ranching, and um, they had a, a big empty grain elevator in the town. So I was like, "What's this? What's this?" So I was uh-huh. asking all that shows up in the book. Yes, it does. Yeah. Um, and it's just you know, it's like there there used to be like gas station pumps and then it was just like why bother so it's just kind of like concreted over but there's like the little remnants of it and my my grandpa so my grandpa graduated from eighth grade but he wouldn't know that he'd gone so far in school but he um he was a trapper what does Um, that mean it means a trapper or a chopper trapper a a fur trapper yeah so um so this town is like right it's touching the missouri breaks it's in montana but they're called the missouri breaks and it's like the badlands isn't that where they didn't marlon brando do a movie yeah it was a really bad movie yeah yeah i remember reading his i read his biography as like when i was like 21 i don't know why it's like one of those (laughs) like grandiose things you do where i was like i'm gonna read a 1000 page biography of the greatest actor that ever lived Was he the greatest? I don't know. I mean, that's like the, the general, you know, that's like the popular uh, yeah. mythos or whatever. And uh, it's one of the most exhausting books I've ever read. Yeah. And that movie Just, was bad. And that, but... I remember that movie being featuring prominently or, you know, there's a section of the book all about what a shit show it was. Yeah. And most of the movies that he was on were a shit show behind the scenes because of him. Yeah. Well, so the Missouri breaks are kind of, they're kind of like the Dakota Badlands. They're, um, it's just like very little grows. It's a lot of rattlesnakes. There's a lot. It's a place where a lot of people hunt. It's like really prime hunting ground, and it's just kind of like sandstone and these funny, um, almost like stone sculptures that just kind of the wind. The wind is basically just cutting right. this. And so when you're in this town, one of the things. So I was there for a month, and you stayed um, for a full month. I stayed in a mu- for a month in the Hunter's Lodge, 
and I was the only one there. And what is that? Like, what is the Hunter's Lodge? It's there. It, they call it the hotel. Okay. But it it only fills up during hunting season, and there's six rooms. If if they were full, but there's no TV in the room, and there's no phone in the room. Is and it creepy? It, it was. I would get, I, when I was inside, I wasn't scared. I was scared what was outside my door because you would just like hear things. You would hear the wind would just like crash into the side of this building and you'd hear like animals kind of pacing outside the door and you're just like, shoot, it's six o'clock, but I'm not, are there I'm not bear, gonna are there bears? Room. Is this like bear country? Uh, like grizzly bears. That's the only thing that would freak me out. It's more like it's, there's a lot of rattlesnakes. It's it's like dry stuff. Okay. Um, and everything sounds like a rattlesnake there because it's like these brittle dry things. Do you not like snakes? No, I don't like. You snakes. don't. <laughs> I don't give a shit about a snake for some reason. Okay, that's why. Because you said a snake. Rattlesnakes um, hang out in dens. Uh-huh. So there's, if you ever see a snake when you're in this town, you stop and you slowly look around because there's probably twenty. And they're like on top of each other. Okay, 20 snakes. I'm starting to get a little freaked out. Yeah, and they're fast. And the thing that really <laughs> freaks me out about snakes is you don't know what direction they're going to go in, but they're going to go in it really fast. So you can't predict. It's but not they don't like, attack, unless you like step on them. That's right. my attitude. It's like, unless I like accidentally step on this rattlesnake, like yeah. it's, it's going to stay away from me. Right, but if you're in a town where they're just kind of where you might step, like yeah. you're trying to leave this uh, ho- hotel for the cozy corner you might just you might be that asshole to the snake that tries to step on it because you didn't see it right um is that like that was your daily trek like were you eating every meal at the cozy corner yeah my so my hair started falling out on this trip and i don't know if it was like the stress of by the way sue that's when you that's when you leave (laughs) when your hair starts falling out in clumps that might be when you get in the rental car and drive back to the airport no i had my brother's truck okay um no, what made me leave? I did leave a little bit early because um, I had a stalker. <laughs> of course, so this is the, that's what made me leave because he would come um, visit me at my um, hotel room. I mean, it's more like a motel. It's like it's like a strip. Everything's on the same level um, with his dog. And I would open the door, and he would just come inside with his dog, and then shut the door. So we were just, and and then he was everywhere. That's scarier than a than a rattlesnake, by the way. I thought so too. Yeah, yeah. I I did. I left because of that. What I was kind, almost kind of, almost kind of to the end of the trip. It was like dog. Like a hunting dog. Just like dog. Just yeah. dog. Okay. Yeah. Like, like my dog, just like a dog. No, bigger than your dog. Big. <laughs> <laughs> your, your dog's like a sweet little. Yeah. Well, she's a puppy. Thing. Oh man! So you had a stalker. yeah. So so there's no there's no cell phone reception um, for like two hours outside of this town. So no phone, no TV, no cell phone, and um, they said there was internet service, but only uh, enough to get the wheel to spin for the whole time. So I was just like cut to- off. Yeah, yeah. That's I'm surprised you didn't write like a horror novel. Like you know what I'm saying? Like this sounds like horror fiction to me. Okay, so when I was there, I actually i i brought just I brought books that would inspire me. Um, one about how to get in the zone, and then I wanted to just go like kill that guy. Um, I'll tell you who he is later. But, but um, so I never got in the zone, and I actually never wrote the whole time I was there. I was stuck in this room. But you got it. But this is the thing. Yeah. Did you go? You went with the intention that like I'm going to hole up here. I'm going to absorb. I'm going to write. I thought I was going to write the whole first draft there. There because so- I was because there was nothing. That, 
Because I had nothing but time on my hands, and I was in this like great atmospheric, creepy place. But you know, I, to me, it, I mean, I guess you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. But it's like you were in input mode; you were there to take yeah. in. Yeah, like, but I didn't know that. You can't do it. I mean, maybe you can, but it seems like it would be hard to like be taking in all of that sensory yeah. experience and emotional experience, yeah. and just like weird, the weirdness of it. Right. Not, not you know, not to bag on it, but just to say that like it's different than what you're used to. Yeah. And it's also like a little unusual. Like, see, this... I, I wish I had thought of that because it it felt very frustrating, like a failure. And I feel like that's a lot of what the writing process is: is you feel like I'm not doing anything, I'm not getting anywhere, I'm all failure and a lot of times you see all those failed steps is what took you to right. publishing your book after the fact right and but then you it, romanticize them and you're like oh it was so bad. yeah then for an interview they're like what was your path to publication and you and you draw it like it was it was like some path that you walked down but it yeah. was it was really like this kind of jarring trip so yeah so i was there and uh yeah when i went back to new york i'd written like a little bit about the wind <laughs> and nothing <laughs> was nothing but it um, but it it you know, it was there. Like you there. had enough uh, experience. I mean, 30 and days. And I took a lot of pictures and I taped people too, they, but they didn't know it. Yeah. So mm -hmm. I, I feel like, you know, when it comes to like journaling or taking stuff down, it, it can be really good to record. It mm -hmm. can be really good to write like, you know, hundreds and hundreds of words every day recording your experience. But ultimately, I would guess the most of it, uh, most of what wound up in your novel the really good stuff sticks. Mm -hmm. Like you, you remember the really good stuff. You remember yeah. that guy coming into your room with the dog. You remember the grain elevator. You remember the cozy corner. Yeah. You remember yeah. the pancake story. You know right. what I'm saying? Like all the good stuff really sticks. And then maybe right. some little details you remember from the photos or. Yeah, you're right. Cause I felt it, it because it's a town I'd been to a lot in my childhood, but I'd never been there by myself and it was completely different. And so, so it was just, and so I, you know, yeah, I was feeling it. And did, did your dad, he grew up there and then got out. Mm-hmm. And then my what? mom or his, my grandma made him get out. Yeah. She, she, did. she had three boys and she's like, get out, <laughs> go do something. Yeah. And so what, and he went on to become a scientist, uh, director of DARPA. What does that mean? I don't even know what that means. Yeah. So D DARPA is like, um, there's the, so he used to work, um, in the DOD. So I grew up in Arlington, Virginia. So department um, of defense, right in the Pentagon. And then DARPA is like the the dark brain of the Pentagon. Oh, wow. Um, it's where, it's where, it's where the internet was, uh, that, that was my dad. Your was, dad actually invented the internet and not Al Gore. He was the, <laughs> Al Gore was actually significant. Yeah. They couldn't have gotten the funding Without and, Al. and the, they needed the, he kind of helped sell it. Um, Al Gore, like, like there, there are places to poke, you know what I'm saying? I'm not saying he's without yeah. fault or like, there's not places to, to find fault, but He's a really smart guy. He is. And all those people that said he's wooden, it's like, I would have loved to have a wooden, smart, smart person yeah. <laughs> doing nice things just for like, the world. It's like a hyper-rational, boring guy with like, yeah. you know, who believes in science. Isn't that what you, who you like, want to do stuff? Yeah. You know, if, if you cut your finger off accidentally and you had a kind of boring, very uh, resourceful, smart neighbor, like you run to their house. It is It is sort of agonizing to think like, like he really won... I know. In 2000. I like, know. It was like, it was just so razor thin. Like the whole course of our history changed there. Yeah. You like got to build the time machine. <laughs> I mean, that's one of those, that's one of those yeah. like butterfly effect moments where you're like, oh, wow. Yeah. So my dad was the boss in, I can't remember the, everything at DARPA is letters. Um, so it was like some three 
letters together was his um did he, he serve in the military yeah he's air force he was okay yeah. and then he like that's a big job but like, he was a big person yeah. in the defense department yeah he does weapons of mass destruction okay <laughs> so what's it like growing up with it like i mean like how do you process like i guess like my attitude is like let's get rid of the nukes yeah can we just get rid of them like i guess we do we need them because other people have them is there any way to de to de um what's the word i'm looking for not demilitarize, but yeah. um, deproliferate. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I do. Get rid of the nukes. Yeah. Can we launch them into space? Can we just get rid of these things? Yeah. So um, my dad and most of the people doing this don't think those things. Um, he's a mathematician. and um, logic brain. Yeah. So some of his projects were um, artificial speech and... Um, uh, the ARPANET. He was the boss of the two guys that invented it, and the um, and he hired them in because he had gone to school with one of them. But um, uh, MX missile, uh, Star Wars, the, like those were a lot of my dad's things. Is he like meeting presidents and stuff like that? Is he, like, he is he in the Oval Office like hanging out with like Ronald Reagan or he? Um, had his hands in um, four administrations, um, Carter, Reagan, Clinton, and uh, the, the other Bush, the H.W. Bush. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Um, but now, so he's retired now, So he, he could, but he consults for NASA and some other things. But, yeah. he's, but so um, DARPA is this, uh, you know, it, people always say it's like the, the dark side. And so basically they have a, a limitless budget and what they want is people to just think of the craziest thing you could possibly think of that might not work, but they just want you to like think towards something that's never happened. Sounds before. like writing a first draft, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Get in the zone and invent the internet and some really crazy weapons. Right. But so, he, but he's not really thinking like, how is this going to be used? He's thinking, um, He's thinking of like the math computations and, and the, you know, he's thinking on that level. And he produced a, like a poet and a novelist. Yeah. Is that, I mean, do you have any other siblings? I have a brother. Is he artistic or is he more math brained or? He's a, he's a doctor. Um, and he's, he's more ma math brained than I am. You know, it comes easier to him. He, uh, He's interesting. You know, he, he gardens and he makes cabinets and he has a band and oh, sings and plays guitar. He's a stuff. fucking genius. Your kids <laughs> are geniuses. Your kids are geniuses yeah. too. I remember you like writing, but it's like your kids are like playing in bands. Like are they yeah. going to Ivy League schools and stuff. They're brilliant. They're but, sort of like savants, right? Your children. <laughs> I, they, I think they have incredible work ethic, both of them. Um, and they're very... They're just very interesting people. So my oldest, um, he just graduated from MIT in May, uh -huh. and now he's there for graduate school. And he's um, going to run the world. <laughs> and he's—it's it, been really interesting though because he—he has—he um, has a brain similar to my dad's, and um, but he's also—he's also wise and sensitive and and thoughtful about things, and he, he reads literature and plays music. And stuff, and it was interesting as he was. So he was course six at MIT, which which is what they call their com computer science engineering kind of degree, which is most people at MIT are course six. And 
he was really good at um, anything to do with patterns or AI or um, coding or I mean, not coding cryptography. Like he's just really good at that kind of thing. But a lot of that stuff leads directly, you know, to the dark side. It could go, it, you're either going towards weapons or you're going towards spying. And when you go towards it's like that scene in Goodwill Hunting, it, like, yeah, where, where they're like courting him for a job, right? But his senior year, because he kind of went too fast through MIT, he had like all these, you know, like this downtime. And his senior year, he took, um, he he was just kind of having like ethical issues with with all the things that he was really good at. Um, you know, he could make a lot of money doing a lot of things, and he just kind of felt like not, you know, sick about doing like some of the stuff that you can do if you're really smart in math. And so um, he took a semester and he took like short story writing, yoga, um, graphic something. Now, now, um, now, like, now I can understand. Now we're on yeah. the same wave. <laughs> so the neat thing, he had this class where um, for the whole semester he had to do like the most complicated math to um, make, so th- think Pixar, like cartoons, and let's say, um, let's say your heroine is wearing a knitted sweater. He had to mathematically knit that sweater so that um, it it you kind of see the body underneath, and it kind of moves, and it's got like little pills, and you can see the the weave, and and it was just like a, a mathematical mind fuck. But then when you get to the end, instead of making a bomb you made a cartoon sweater and he loved it. He huh. loved it. It is, it, you know, it brings up an interesting point, not just mm-hmm. for your son, but for all of us. And I've been, I'm like in the process of interviewing for jobs right now, mm-hmm. trying to decide what like to do next. Yeah. And it's like, man, I want to do something with my life or at least like with like my day job mm-hmm. that makes a positive contribution and like reflects my values sounds corny, but it's true. It's like very easy to get in this, in the service of trying to pay bills or whatever, build a career. You can wind up doing things where it's like, was that net positive for humanity? Right. What I just did. Do I feel good coming home after having done that? What's the, yeah. I mean, and and like it can get tricky because I've heard a lecture about this very topic and I've heard, I've actually, I've heard lectures about multiple lectures about this topic that resonated with me. One was that like, you know, uh, somebody who works in, let's say defense Mm -hmm. or, um, works for Northrop Grumman or whatever it is, you know, and they are making weapons. You want to have people like if you suddenly have a conscience calling or something and you decide Mm -hmm. like, I can't do this, I'm going to go do watercolors. Yeah. Somebody else is going to take your job. Right. They'll be happy to take that job. Right. They won't be as awake about it as you are. Mm-hmm. So it's like not quite so simple of just like quit your job and leave. Right. What we need. And, and then like, it's like cops, like who might be like, wow, you know, like I'm carrying a gun around and that, but we need like, we need like mindful cops. Right. Right. Uh, people need, who know how to deescalate. Yeah. People who know yeah. how to deescalate people who know how to like take care of their emotions and right. make sure that when they get into like really heated situations, mm-hmm. they can take a breath right. and like read the situation emotionally and right. not like be and over- people who feel an investment to the community that they're, yeah. they're serving. Yeah. yeah. So it's like, I don't know. Like I think about that, um, both personally and then more broadly, it's a big issue. Mm-hmm. And I think it, it's tied to some of the things we were discussing earlier, like global capitalism, 
uh, like how the whole machine works, how we all get by and survive, yeah. you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, these things have an impact. It's all very much interrelated. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of times it can be very easy when you're fighting to get, uh, bills paid yeah. to just be looking only at like one inch in front of you. Right. It's right. natural, but it's like, e right. Yeah. I, I have to I, I have to add in my other kid because we both have two kids and oh, it's right. like you only talk about one. It's like not. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Tell me about your other genius too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so he is. Um, they're a year apart, and he went to a music conservatory for jazz guitar. Oh my god! And then after the first semester, and he's brilliant guitarist. He's just a brilliant guitarist. How, and, how much fun is it as a parent to watch your kid just shred on the guitar? It's pretty cool. <laughs> I mean, and and also he likes he likes to um improvise, you know, like jazz. Yeah. So it's neat to and he when he was in high school, he would play he loved like if, if there's like some uh seventy year old man who plays a trumpet, you know, it's like that's what he was listening to and it was just really adorable because you you think you're gonna have kids that like listen to heavy metal or something and you you and and then he just like likes this like old I'm such a fan of improvisational music. Yeah. I love jazz. I love that about it. I love mm -hmm. like I mean I, I the thing is I don't really love a lot of jam bands, but I'm a huge Grateful Dead fan. There's it's very jazz like. Yeah. Um yeah. when it works and it doesn't always, especially yeah. with them, because they were so like, well. It's me because it's a relationship with all your other musicians, and so with it, the audience, it, it, and you can all like crash together. Too. Yeah, you can yeah. all crash. So it's like that was part of what was so exciting about seeing that live, and like it's like you didn't know if it was going to work. Yeah, like a lot of bands are like so good and professional and practice. Mm -hmm. Like you go to a Radiohead show, like it's going to work. Yeah, like they know what they're doing. These right. guys are like very, very they're pros. Right. There's but, also like pre-planned improvisation. That, <laughs> yeah. But like when it's really just like, let's yeah. see, let's go. No, it's I, cool. I find that very thrilling. Yeah. So he, so he you know, is this like genius guitar. Yeah. I can see he's genius because he's my kid. Um, all our kids are genius. But he, um, he, he went for a semester and he came back and he just looked, he was home for Christmas and he looked like he needed a blood transfusion. He just looked like shit. And this is my, my my social kind of zen kid you know yeah, he, he's yeah. usually pretty pretty even and so it was like four days for him to go back and i was like are you all right and then he just that was you it know. yeah and he he said it was so lonely he was like we just go in this like rehearsal room we you sign out a rehearsal room and you go in there by yourself for like six hours and you just play to your hands hurt and and then he was like between that and auditioning, that's going to be my whole life. And he was just like, that's Auditioning not fun. Auditioning for what? For like... Each new job. Like, let's say you're a session musician or oh, something. Right, and you're right. just like... And he was just like... And he was he was doing really well. And he was like, I can stick it out. And I was just like, no. And he's just like, I'm sorry. I didn't want to... Whatever. And I was like... <laughs> of, of all the things you can just like remove off of your worry list is, is that, you know, I'm somehow... Um, disappointed in you or that, right. you know, or that I want to direct where you go in life. So he was like, can I show you what I do during my free time there? Which he didn't really even have free time. He's and like, I, I actually design weapons in yeah. my free time. I'm tired of this guitar. <laughs> he, he wrote three screenplays and then he did like a bunch of these like comic uh, storyboards and stuff. And I was like, oh, okay. So he ended up going to film school. So now they're both in Boston. He's at Emerson and he's 
taking film and he doesn't know if he wants to be a cinematographer or a director or something, but he's definitely like, he's just, and he can write the score. He's so happy. Yeah. Well, he started playing guitar again for pleasure. He hadn't for a long time. And he just, he now, like now he doesn't have to play the kind of guitar. You would still think he was really great, but you don't have to pla- practice six hours a day for what, what he plays now. That can take the fun out of it. Yeah. You know, like yeah. enforced practice and being in like a room. I, mm-hmm. I get it. I get it. Especially for somebody who is, it's like a child and just is like finding joy in playing. Yeah. And yeah. all of a sudden it like gets serious and mm-hmm. confined. And you're like, is this it? Yeah. I get it. Uh, but I'm glad he found. Yeah, like, he loves know. it. He loves watching movies, talking about movies, you know, bad-mouthing movies. You know, he'll the whole probably thing. wind up the, out oh. here. <laughs> he probably will. <laughs> you know, and he probably will. Like, all these skills. Like imagine yeah. being, I feel like that's like a, a very good gift to have, the ability to play an instrument like at a high level of proficiency. Yeah. I envy that. I do too. And I, to, to be honest with you, I envy having like a, a really high functioning, sophisticated math brain mm-hmm. just as like a, an oddity. Like what, what would that be like? I, there's a burden to it. There is. Mm-hmm. What is it? Um, by the way, everybody listening to this right now has absolutely no context <laughs> for what you're about to say. Um, <laughs> headaches, uh, uh, almost like a, um, it's a lot to and carry in there. Me- like, it, if you don't get it out or use it, it's like it hurts. You, right. you it's like you you um, load up with like clutter of ideas or patterns or something, and and then the the real burden and, and you know one of the you know as a parent you're always just like oh fuck I thought I was going to be the the great parent who didn't you know, hurt anyone and they wouldn't have to go to therapy or whatever. Right, right. Um, Fingers crossed. Yeah. (laughs) And and then damn it, you're human, you know, and you just, so part of when you have, you're sort of, you think differently than the kids in school. You're that different kid. I mean, yeah. um, You're, it's lonely. Uh, It's hard socially. It's hard because a lot of times you get pulled out of class. Um, a lot of times you just kind of don't relate on the same level. The things you want to talk about that really please you and interest you. Uh, kids would just say, oh, you're so smart. But he didn't want anyone to tell him he was smart. He wanted to actually like talk about things. Yeah, you know? I, I can. I mean, I sort of get that. Um, not, I mean, I get it. I totally understand what you're saying. I don't mm-hmm. get it as like a person with math yeah. brain. But like. I don't know. Like I, I think that's part of the reason why I do this show is that conversations like this, like, like weird, mm-hmm. esoteric, literary, <laughs> meandering, they don't happen that often for me in my life. Yeah. And so, like, just that basic anxiety of being like, no, no, I really want to talk about this. Yeah. Especially when it's like small talk at a party, and right. I'm just like, I, like let's actually have a conversation. Like, what's going on with you? And right. people will be like, "What's your fucking problem?" Well, well, the neighborhood I live in, where you know, it's like appliance repair and waitresses, and yeah. they, they're all fine. But almost no one I've met in in my town reads. Huh. Um, they haven't read since high school, and they even didn't really read the, the book in high school. Right. And so the things that I want to talk about just seem just kind of dumb to them, or you know, like the conversation just ends immediately. And so I, I think whenever, whenever you see your kid different, um, and you see that, um, you know, they, they don't find that their, their tribe, their peer group, the people that just make them feel good and it's easy. Right. And, 
um, you know, it's like he w- he would get pulled out of class and he'd have to take a, a class down at the college and then you come back and you missed some period because they they only let you miss the, the periods that don't matter as much as you can't skip English class to go there. So you're going to skip the one where, where people are actually like having fun and hanging out. Yeah, or... where they're kind of hanging out and you make your friends. Right. So, um, you know, it's a. It, it's a it's a pro and a con. He, you know, it's he, hard to be a genius. Yeah. It's hard, I mean, yeah. you know. But he's gonna have he's gonna have it uh, good, you know, in the long run. Yeah, I think. Yeah. And uh, we need people like him. We need really smart people in this country. Yeah, like I, that's like what occurs to me now more than ever. Like I was watching, like the other day, I tweeted something. We just about, actually just don't need dicks. I just feel like the, we just have like stupid people on dicks right now. I want you know? yeah, I want like more kindness. Mm-hmm. But I also. I want, we, we, we need, we have big problems to yeah. solve that yeah. feel overwhelming to me sometimes. I'm right. like, I have no idea how to get this plastic Island. That's like the size of Texas out of the Pacific ocean. But like, right. I want that thing out of there. Right. It's like, uh, like, and Lance, instead like, they're probably thinking of like how to make another one. So they yeah. can... <laughs> just like, get it out. It's like Lance the boil. Like, how do we, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. it's like, it really bothers me to like think about that. Mm-hmm. It makes me like deeply sad and like anxious. Yeah. I don't know how to do that. Yeah. Someone's going to figure it. Some, some kids like your son is going to figure that out. How to like airlift it or dissolve it or I don't even know. But, right. Um, so your book, you, you know, you sort of, we've taken like a long path to, to uh, talking about how it came to be. Mm-hmm. And part of it was, um, you know, what was going on in the country back mm-hmm. at the initial stages of its conception. And then the other thing, the big thing I think is like this theme of death. And whether it's like, you know, literal death, like the human body passing away or whatever, or it's the death of a way of life, Mm -hmm. you know, it's working on multiple levels. Right. So you have a main character who's a mortician, who's confronting her neighbors Mm -hmm. with whom, uh, there was not a lot of rapport in, in life, but in death, she treats them with great kindness and dignity. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that's an interesting character to yeah. address this theme. What a perfect person to address this theme of, <laughs> right. you know, um, time passing, uh, things coming and going, which is yeah. the nature of things. Right. And like, it's, God, I, it makes me think of, uh, I was having an, uh, not like an argument, but I have a friend who's really smart and with whom I had often discussed things political in my youth, who has taken like this really laissez fair approach to the st- the situation that we're living in now. Mm which is defensible, yeah. doesn't watch the news. Like yeah. as a rule, like, I don't watch the news. Right. I don't read about it. It's like this like strict media diet. Right. And They're doing like, Sweden. <laughs> yeah. Like, I'm just, I'm just doing yoga yeah. and I'm, you know, like I'm focused on, I'm out in nature, you know, like just kind of like just pretending it's not happening almost. Right. Right. And I'm like, <clears throat> okay. Cause I'm the, I'm sort of the opposite. I'm every step of this thing I've yeah. been watching. And I feel like, I guess both are defensible, Yeah. but there's also a part of me that's like, if, if really smart people turn away, mm-hmm. isn't that sort of seeding the field? And he's also mm-hmm. like really confident that like things are going to be okay. Yeah. He's like, this is just a phase in history. This is a bump. Right. I'm starting to lose that confidence. And I'm like, yeah. I'm like, really? Like, like, what about like the indigenous people of Tibet? What about the Native Americans? Yeah. Like the good guys don't always win. Mm-hmm. And like, not that the Tibetans are the Native Americans and Native Americans is an umbrella term. There are different, you know, tribes and everything that yeah. they weren't all exactly the same, but like, 
there's a big part of me that sort of feels like the Native American, the indigenous people in this country got, well, I know they got <laughs> fucked over, yeah. but I also feel like they were wiser than the people who, they were smarter, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, in so many ways, like in terms of their relationship to the land. And I don't know, I, we could, we could pick that one apart for a long time, yeah. but I, I guess what I'm getting at is that, uh, when it comes to things coming and going, it's been on my mind. Uh, and I've been thinking to myself, like sometimes, uh, the bad guys win. <laughs> yeah. It's scary to think about. And I think that maybe the people in your neighborhood or people all across the country, mm -hmm. that's sort of like what everybody's feeling, whether yeah. it's misguided or it's accurate. Right. They feel like the bad guys are going to win. My way of life is going to go away. Yeah. Things are going to be screwed up. Well, so that's kind of where I was when I, when I got back to New York and with no words <laughs> written. Yeah. Except some, for like a beautiful poem about the wind. Yes. <laughs> At some point it, it kind of came out of trying to explain to my friends on Long Island who were like, what? There's no mall, you know, right, right. <laughs> so, you can't get a cozy. What? Yeah. Um, it was in trying to talk to them and then showing people pictures and kind of looking at the pictures again, now that I'm, I'm, I'm back, you know, in civilization, um, it was a sense that, oh, I was watching a death. I was watching, and, you know, it's like the rage against the dying of the light thing. It's like the death's going to win. Death's going to win. Yeah. Um, and yet um, there was this kind of pride and, and uh, you know, we'll fight this and stuff. And so... Somewhere from there, I start brainstorming like, okay. It, God, that's so sad. Yeah. That like, it's almost like a denial, but it's also like, well, what else are you going to do? Just Well, I also, over? I also think, you know, rage feels better than grief. You know, rage it's a feels, lazy, it's it feels a lazy, strong. It's a lazy form of grief. Yeah. But it feels like, it feels like you're strong. Like, yeah. like I, this isn't going to win or something versus saying, ah, oh, this is happening. I'm you sad. Know? Yeah. So I thought, okay. If I write about let's, if I write about the death of a town, who should tell it? So I just kind of like brainstormed a bunch of things, and then at some point I was like, "Oh my god, what if someone from a funeral home told this story?" Then it's like the death of small town America is told by a mortician, and I and then I was like, "Okay, now now I know." Is and that I'm, when it clicked? Like when did you feel like you yes, had? Yes. Okay, it? so I want to just like get rid of the myth, like. Like I, I got that idea in any kind of hurry and then I just like wrote it. I wrote for a long time, lost. Dozens and dozens of pages. No, Hundreds? I wrote like, I wrote like <laughs> for three years. Wow. For three years, I wrote 54 chapters and it didn't work. And then I tried to fix it and then it didn't work. And then I had a friend look at it to see if he can help me see how to fix it and then that didn't work so then i threw the 54 chapters away the process is always like way messier and and more failure ridden than and then um so i was just like one i'm not going to be writing this book fuck all that time i wasted and and i'm stupid and then and then i thought maybe i just won't ever write just anything because it, so you it, had real dark nights of the soul where you were like this is not oh happen. yeah yeah why did you keep going I didn't mean to. <laughs> I went on a trip. Okay. 
and the town was just kind of like chewing at me. And then we started into the what, what primary. Town? What town? Win it or, or? Yeah, this town that I had visited was just like. But you went on a trip to someplace else. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I went. I went. I went to visit my brother, and. Um, in Montana. Yeah. He yeah. lives in a different town. He lives in civilization. He okay. lives in Missoula. Okay. So, um, he he's the team doctor for the the Lady Grizz basketball oh, team. Okay. So, um, and the the town was just like. You, it was kind of like, okay, you didn't tell the story right, but you need to write about that town. And I was like, I knew that town so well. And then what really like happened was we moved into the presidential primary season where whatever I had felt about that initial spark with the tea party and that lady with the shaving cream, it just kind of got like way ramped up. Yeah. And so then I went back and looked at those pictures again. So when I said I went home and I looked at the pictures, I meant, okay, three years later, after I just totally fucked up, then I looked at the pictures again. And then it was like, okay, that was death. And then I got the mortician idea. And then I was so like unnerved by the primary season in, in the, the Trump Hillary, which was, season. which was like really like the, uh, it was like the, it was like, cause I feel like the tea party, the anxieties that were animating the tea party were exploited by the GOP mm-hmm. prior to Trump. Yeah. But like Trump did it on steroids. Yeah. Like that was where he just like went for it. Right. And he, and, and he just like went like, hey, why don't I harness the racism just outright? And say it. And say it. Like that's <laughs> yeah. the thing. He was ex- like, like yeah. the, I feel like all of the darknesses that were sort of subsurface and animating a lot of what was happening there right. were uh, implicit and he made them explicit. Exactly. And that was unnerving. And the sad thing watch. was finding out how many people were okay with that. Yeah. Yeah. And felt like, like uh, not only okay with it, but like felt like... Uh, liberated and like yes, giddy with it. Yeah, yeah. Giddy. yeah, it was weird. It was weird. And so, how do we put so that when, genie back w- in the box? I know, I, or yeah. back in the bottle or whatever. You know? So my husband grew up in England. He 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 doesn't think this is good. He he thinks we're in the you know fall of Rome kind of times. There's he he thinks well, he's pretty cynical about stuff. And I'm sort of I'm hopeful by nature, but I'm kind of losing. I'm kind of losing it. So when when I um, when all this stuff came together and I got my mortician idea, then I wrote the book in probably like five or six months, which has never happened before. So wow. I'll just say that it took me five or six months to write this book. But it took yeah, right? <laughs> such a lovely story. I was in the zone. I don't know what to tell you. Yes, it's a delightful place to be for five straight yes, months. Yes, it was all joy. No, but that happened to me uh, on attention deficit disorder. My novel, I. Uh, I've, Which is brilliant. Uh, it, I was a young. It's a young person's novel. It but is. I uh, I struggled. It struggled. I wrote like terrible versions, like mm-hmm. really, truly, that are light years different than what the final version was. But the final version I wrote in like five months. Yeah. And you tell people that, and they go, "Oh my god!" And yeah, then you're like, "You don't you. have any." <laughs> <laughs> it's a total disaster. Yeah. For most of the time, but you have to go through that stuff and. I guess like it's instructive. So like the next time you write a book, when you hit these moments, you have a little bit more confidence that you're going to see it through. And then... I'm way more patient. Once you realize that you can make chaos and failure and stuff, and at some point you, you went from a blank page to being like lost mm. to you have a book, at some point you just start saying, okay, I can do it and I'm, I might be surprised by how I get there or what I actually end up with at the end. But I'm definitely more, I'm not patient by nature, but I'm definitely more patient with 
the the messy process of writing and just like okay i'm freaking out now yeah just let this pass yeah give like give it some time Mm -hmm. i'm just gonna go live in the middle of nowhere for 30 days and well the other i i have a few tricks so another trick that i like is um if i say i'm working on the book every day it doesn't mean i'm writing like a lot of people like i have to write you know 500 words a day or whatever a lot of times i don't write for months not not a word a lot of times i'm like just circling the material so with this book there was a time i was just like watching movies that had snow in it um i would go to calf taggings and um just kind of like just breathing in the, the some of the touchstones it was like i i didn't really know what the story was all the time but it's like i knew i just loved stories in set in blizzard so i was just like i'm just gonna put blizzard in because i can it's yeah. my book <laughs> you know i can put and, a blizzard anywhere i want yeah and, it, and it's like okay i know it's in rural stuff so i'm just gonna do stuff or i might i might go to a diner and just kind of like eavesdrop and just like eat really slowly and drink a few cups of coffee and i call that writing time that is yeah it is like you have to um especially if you're writing outside of like your own context mm-hmm. you have to absorb and you have to go or like I don't know how people do it where it's like, yeah, I wrote a, uh, you know, a novel set in Egypt. I never went. Mm-hmm. Just watched some YouTube videos. Yeah. Like, or maybe I just like want excuses to go travel and, you know, do financially reckless things. But it's like, I feel like you sort of have to, I, I don't know how you could possibly write a place to the best of your ability having never set foot on the ground there. Yeah. Cause it takes a while to, you know, it, you have to like turn the rocks over and see what's like crawling under the rock. And you, uh, you have to like, what do people keep in their pockets in this place? So, you know, you yeah. just have to kind of get intimate with the material. And so um, I call it writing time. I think that's a good rule. Yeah. So I'm really far into my new book and I've written zero words, but I feel like, I'm like you know. Wow. Yeah. So like, how many, how long have you been, like the, the next one after this? Yeah. How long have you been working? Um, probably like nine months, but I haven't written a word yet. Okay. Yeah. Any poems about wind? Nothing. No. <laughs> um, but it's but I I'm feeling it. I'm just getting closer. But I I just find like. Do you have a sense? Can you like give me like a broad sense of it? Yeah. So I live in this town um, called Kings Park, and the whole town was um, centered around this um, insane asylum. And it housed ten thousand people, and not this one, but the in our in like two towns over. On Pil- Long Island. In, yeah, Pilgrim. Uh, that's where the lobotomy was invented and and shock therapy. So it's a proud legacy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so the whole place is abandoned, and. Um, my teenagers and like all the teenagers, all they do is they break into this place. So it's this huge looming monstrous building 10,000 people yeah and all the doors are bolted shut now every single window is broken there's like vines growing over it and there's like 10 million ways in and so the kids are just my kids even made an apartment in one of the things like they brought they brought furniture in and stuff wow. um, they swept all the raccoon poo into the back corner so right. they had like a clean space so um i know my book is in there I know my book is going to be set in this, and I'm I'm actually more interested in the in the now of the building with the kids, 
Um, there's no hauntings, no reports of ghosts. Is there any? I mean, there's all that. So like, all it, that. it's it's like a big target for those you know those people with their like little equipment. Yeah. And, stuff. Um, and you know it's just asbestos in there, and there's like a lot of the like the old machines are in there, and and the old bathtubs and stuff. So <sighs> so part of what I do is I just like break in all the time. You can anybody can just sort of wander into this place. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Uh, there's certain like all the locals know like don't go in there because you'll fall through the floor or stuff so you start to learn but um so i i circle it i physically circle it and i take pictures of it and um i've watched it through all the seasons very closely and realize i i'm very interested in the season when like all the poison ivy turns bright yellow and red and um so i know my stories in there and then i'm starting to get to know um some people that used to work there and some people that used to be patients there or they had a family member who was a when patient. When did it go? When did it shut down? In 96. Oh, in 96. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it's so, like, I mean, you know, and it's been functional in our lifetimes. It's mm-hmm. not like some ancient place. Right. And, uh. It's kind of lived through all the, you know, the, like the history timeline of psychiatry. Is there, in addition to people that you're interviewing? Is there a literature about this place? Like, is yeah. it, was it been written about? I, I would imagine like in the community, if all, everyone's teenage kids are like, you yeah. know. Like, there's, there's this guy that I've made like really close friends with. His name is Leo Ostebo. And he's like this cranky uh, guy. He's like 80. I love him. And I love cranky people. <laughs> <laughs> and he He's has the right place. He has something called the Kings Park Heritage Museum. And it's basically like, if you were hoarding, it's kind of like you went to a garage sale and there was just like random stuff from this town and the hospital and stuff. And he collects it and he talked the middle school into um, using like seven rooms in the school and putting. So it's kind of like a, a seven room like the museum. Yeah. Like um, garage sale, but he's not selling anything. And I just go and I hang out and I just talk with him. I was going to say, he's like the perfect resource he's for you. He's amazing. And I <laughs> and I have him on tape and stuff. And, and I just, I visit him all the time. And I'm just kind of like, so, so back to what you said before, you thought it was like you're in input mode. And because I experienced that first time as a failure, but it's like, now it's like, now I'm totally okay being in input mode. Did you do that with Up From The Blue? Did you have like an input mode time there too? Like any kind I of. I think big... I did, although that one was like much more memoir. So, um, okay. it, that was the story I needed to write to get it. To, to get over yourself? Yeah, like, yeah. Because all the other stories were behind that one. I couldn't get to any other story until I just like got that one done. Like that was the one that like helped me sleep at night I and stuff. That. It was like getting it out. I'm working um, on a book like that and it's just like taking me forever yeah i don't know if i'll ever get it but i'm trying okay yeah but it's like i got gotta write it if you need uh eyes on it let me know okay i don't know be careful what you <laughs> wish for <laughs> <laughs> i no, i am very careful what i offer yeah i never offer something that i am hoping someone doesn't take me up on so it's two hundred eighty-five thousand words huh? i'm just kidding <laughs> <laughs> yeah, never mind. I just, e- I just emailed it to you. <laughs> Get back to me within the week. Yes. Um, and so you're out in Los Angeles. You're doing some events. You're doing mm-hmm. festivals. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you're gathering intel for the next book. Yeah. Do you have, uh, like, do you set goals? Like, are you like, I got to get this next book done by X or do you, no. you got to let it, no. let it play Cause out. Cause I'll just fail the goal. Right. Yeah. So just, and, but in, it sounds too, Sue, like you, 
you, you like it's going to take you two, three, four, five years to write mm-hmm. the next book. Yeah. Like, that's just the way it goes. I and think I'm just like a five-year person. I think you have to let yourself be who you are a little bit there. Like yeah. if you try to force some sort of timeline on yourself that is not, it's just not happening. Like there are some writers who they yeah. crank out two books a year. Or well, and honestly, the, the publishing part is not really very fun. You know, it's, it's not like you want to race to the, you know, to, to be an unknown person. And it's way more fun, like being a hermit. And in, in I'm in my garage too when I write. Yeah. My garage doesn't look like this. <laughs> so it's way more fun being the hermit writer than someone suddenly giving the introvert a microphone and, and telling you to like, Tell everybody about your book and right, stuff. So, right. so I'm not in a especially hurry when it's for that. especially when you're deep into it. That's yeah, the best part. Yeah, yeah. Where the, you like you know the terrain, you know your characters. The best part is when you kind of find when you know where the story is, and you and and then you can just kind of like th- then it doesn't feel like you're in chaos. Like well, I wish lost. you, I wish you well on the next book. I wish you another okay. five to six month period where you just it just shoots out of you. Yeah. After five to six years <laughs> of yeah. experiential research, staying, That's the in, best we can staying hope for. in weird motels and wandering aimlessly through an abandoned insane asylum. Yes. It's so nice to meet you in person. Thank, Thank you for you. coming over and uh, congratulations on the new book. Thanks so much. Okay, that's Susan Henderson. Her new novel is called The Flicker of Old Dreams, available from Harper Perennial. Her first book, her debut novel, is called Up From the Blue. That, that too, is out there, I believe, also from Harbor Perennial. You can find Sue online at litpark.com. She's on Twitter, at litpark. You can find her on Facebook, litpark.com. The flicker of old dreams. Go get your copy. Susan Henderson. Great to have her on the show. If you would like to write to me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. If you'd like to support the show, it is patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Don't forget about the app. It's free. Go get the Other People app. It's a good way to listen. And uh, what else? Thanks to Kill Rockstars and the band Stereo Total for the theme song music. Thanks to the band Cigarette Royalty for the interstitial music. The music you're listening to right now. I gotta go to, I gotta go to an event tonight, too. I forgot to mention that. Been up since 1.45. Exhausted. Now I've gotta go to, like, a... Cinco de Mayo party. Gotta like eat tacos and be social. I'm gonna be a mess. <laughs> but you know, like I just you're just gonna I just gotta be a big boy. I gotta power through it. I can do this. Just have a margarita, have a taco, be nice. People think you're medicated, but you just let them think that. They don't realize. Maybe I'll tell people about my Alexa experience. Maybe others have had a similar experience and we can share and find in each other a source of uh, moral support. It sucks when you can't trust your artificial intelligence. It's a fucked up world. I don't know where to turn anymore. (laughs) Alexa, off. Alexa, listen to me. Hear my call. I just want to sleep. That's all I want. I just want to sleep. Hey, Alexa, can you please just...